0: Welcome to yet another episode of the New Space India podcast. Since the 1950s, space has been a realm where militaries have used to increase their command and control abilities for action on the ground. India is one of the rare countries which started with a completely civilian focused space program. I always wondered why post the Indo-China war in 1965 or the Indo-Pakistan war in 1971, We did not see a rise in space being used militarily and a military space program branching off in India. Of course, we all know that after the Kargil war, there was a deep interest in utilizing space to support the armed forces. Post which in 2007, the integrated defense staff was formed to support the armed forces with space capabilities. I believe there are tremendous capabilities that space can bring in to the Indian armed forces to defend our borders and to integrate space capabilities as a part of military modernization of the Indian armed forces. It is challenging to find a guest who's insightful to discuss all of this, who has worked in the armed forces and can provide a perspective that makes sense to the listeners. I'm happy that General Menon agreed to be a guest on this show to throw some insight into the history of space capabilities used by the Indian Armed Forces and what it could mean and how it could be used more rigorously in the coming days. General Menon is retired and now is the Director of Strategic Studies Program at the Taksashila Institutions, which is based in Bangalore. He joined the Indian Army in 1972 and has extensive operational experience in commanding counterinsurgency operations in Central North and South Kashmir. He was the Major General Staff of the Indian Army's Northern Command responsible for operations in Jammu and Kashmir and the Commandant of the National Defense College in New Delhi. Post his retirement in 2011, he continued in the government as a military advisor and secretary to the government of India and from 2015 as officer on special duty in National Security Council Secretariat. General Menon has a PhD from Madras University for his thesis limited war and nuclear deterrence in the Indo-Pak context. General Menon has been decorated with three Distinguished Service Awards. Post his retirement, he continues to research. I believe this is an extremely insightful conversation to anyone who wants to understand the scope for integration of space as a part of Indian Armed Forces. General Menon, welcome to this episode of the New Space uh, India podcast. Thank you. We have uh, seen space as a part of uh, military around the world since the beginning of time, especially you know in the 50s and uh, and the 60s, and the whole evolution of space uh, has always been with the military. Uh, but that's only been outside of India. India is one of the earliest countries to choose space only for uh, you know societal services and uh, a socio-economic development. So I wanted to take this time with you to understand, you know, the background of how space uh, has a role in military and perhaps how this can be also integrated into the armed forces in India. To Just to begin this conversation, can you briefly tell us what is the role of space in Indian armed forces historically in, based on your experiences in the armed forces?
1: Yeah, so actually the role runs parallel to two developments. One is the development of India's space capability itself. The other is the availability of space capability outside from international sources from which India could actually get what they couldn't get from India. So based on this is what you what you call the armed forces connection to space. And uh, since Indian space program was primarily oriented towards national economy in the areas of agriculture, water resources, forestry, ecology, geology, watersheds, marine fisheries, and coastal management. It was not specifically meant for the military. But as we know, that all these also had dual applications. So it was perhaps in the first IRS series launched in 1988 1988, where certain inputs were probably given to the military. Now, if you look at the model based on demand and supply, it was primarily a model from which it was a pull model by the military. Uh, Israel would give it to them if they could but based on primarily what the military asked for. So it was not something which they were, it was not certainly not their primary role. So it was a sort of a relationship which was loose and uh, which was, which grew, but as a separated entity. But I think uh, really speaking, if you look at the use of space in the armed forces, it, it probably, it was in, 1984, when we went to the Siachen Glacier and we had, uh, we occupied the glacier, where this, uh, the need for utilizing, especially satellite imagery, came to the fore. And that is when the armed forces seriously started thinking about how do we harness this capability? And the initial effort, was put in to source it from outside the country because what was available from Israel was insufficient for their needs. So if you see the growth of the armed forces' institutions, which was part of the value chain for interpretation and dissemination, you'll find that between the period eighty-eight. And ninety six was when a whole lot of these facilities started being established at various echelons of the Indian Armed Forces, starting from Delhi down to where the formations and the fleets and so on. So this was the period when this was done. But I think till the, as, let's say, if you look at, The technology experimental satellite launched in October 2001. This was a dual satellite, maybe the first satellite, military satellite, you may call it. Uh, Otherwise, the dependence was primarily on getting imagery from the outside, interpreting it and then passing it down. So we had a standoff relationship with the ISRO itself because the ISRO was also subjected to a whole lot of technological sanctions and they did not want to be overtly be connected to the military system itself because one of the images that they wanted to maintain was that of being of civilian use. So they were always sensitive to this issue. But the military still realize what is the importance and therefore the demand was much more than what could possibly be met and that I think will always be the case because the militaries have realized long time ago the need to leverage what space can provide both in terms of remote sensing and communications for the conduct of their operations. I think that was a lesson which they've learned long time ago. The question is that when Technology is required by the military, it still has to face the acquisition system of the military, because all this costs money, you've got to buy it, somebody has to approve it, somebody has to give money for its maintenance, and that is where normally the catch is. So, as other technologies are also subject to the same conditions, I would think, the armed forces connection and relationship with space facilities and the access to it is also as much impacted by the pathologies of our acquisition system. And that continues to probably be the case, maybe although it might have improved. So I would think that if you really look at the time frame which we are actually talking about, we would One would think that as India's capacity grew, the military wanted more. And today, I probably, if you really look at it, we have probably some military satellites and so on. But it, the demand is much more and it could, can never be possibly satisfied. So it's a dual system where you have something which is indigenously available or you try to source it from the outside. And that's how it has been.
0: I want to take a step back here to, uh, to a little bit, you know, behind the 1984 scene that you talked about, uh, to perhaps even 1965 or 1971, uh, because at that point of time, space uh, was gathering some steam in terms of uh, formalisation of ISRO and uh, creation of the whole uh, space program through then, you know, branching out from the atomic program. Why was it that uh, then? At that point itself, we did not have a dedicated uh, defense space uh, program. Was it because it was just too early in terms of technology? Or was it that uh, you know this was too much of a modernization effort in the armed forces right then and there itself? Yeah, I
1: think if you look at the time frame itself and the establishment of the, or the birth of the ISRO and so on, you'd find that during this time frame which we're talking about, uh, we, we really had very nascent, as ISRO was after all established only in August 1969. And dependence again was on Russia for space technology and launch facilities. And this, uh, and primarily meant for societal applications. In 1965 and 1971, India space technology was in its formative years. So we had nothing probably which we could harness for operational purposes. We were not even organized to do so. And, but I think the point that you make was that since 1971 turned out to be a victory uh, and, and we did not feel probably the loss or the absence of, of uh, space itself in that operation. We did not actually uh, put a point forward to say that this is not only can be used for economics but it also should actually have a military orientation. But That never happened. So I'm not very sure as to what is the conversation which took place between the military leadership and the authorities as to what they wanted. But what we see on the ground is neither did the military get it. I don't know how much they asked for it or nor were they given what, even if they asked for it. So that's the point. So we continued till in 1984, when we felt the need. And then, of course, it is followed much later by what is the Cargill crisis, where things actually changed.
0: And that brings me to this point of uh, Cargill. Do you think that uh, space might have been one of the biggest uh, sensors that could have probably contributed to intelligence on activity in Cargill back then if it was present in a sufficient manner? And perhaps even, you know, the biggest... uh, outcome of uh, allowing space to be integrated into the military as a part of the you know strategy in terms of uh, overhauling the use of space in in the Indian military how did it play out you know before and after you know the Kargil committee report had this to say that what the
1: Kargil conflict highlighted was the gross inadequacies in the nation's surveillance capability particularly through satellite imagery. These are the exact wordings of the Carmel Review Committee. So the absence, how much it would have affected is a matter which we can't actually judge, but the fact that we probably didn't have anything at all. And that was the the biggest milestone in the armed forces journey to use satellite, uh, the potential of satellite imagery for operational purposes. And that's when we actually started going down the road and then we set up the NTRO and many other facilities during this period. But it was not that we did not realize it, but we didn't have the facilities. Now, I'm not quite sure why we didn't have it because I'm not quite sure whether it is... you can. Normally, it would be that both sides would be to blame. The military did not make enough noise and the nation did not give it what it wanted. I mean, I'm not really sure of the comment. But the fact remains... We did, our facilities were grossly insufficient. That's there in the Kargil Review Committee report. So if we see the progress today, that's the milestone which we need to look at. And whether it would have changed the very course of Kargil conflict, it's a non-event. It's difficult to judge it because we do not know how that would have played out. But if we had it, certainly it would have been of help. At least that's what the Kargil Committee report clearly points out. And that's when things started to change. So that's a milestone that the that Kargil Comit, the conflict woke us up to something which we should have had. And that's when we started having it. I think that's the, the that's, I think, better way to look at the Kargil, what, it, what it has done to us.
0: Space uh, as a, you know, realm as an operational realm as a technology capability and a tool is uh, quite tricky because, uh, from a traditional probably armed forces perspective, you have you know three branches of the military trying to do their own things, and space comes as a domain addition to this, which can give an additional advantage to each of them in a different manner. It could be something different for the army. It could be something different for the navy. It could be something different for the air force. So. In that sort of a perspective, how is space looked after, you know, by the armed forces, each of these branches, and how does it then turn into coordination of using space uh, as a part of them?
1: Yeah, so post-Cargill, what happened was we created this headquarters integrated defense staff, IDS as they're called. And they had a space cell. It had the representation of all the three services. And it was supposed to actually um, be the uh, cell which will coordinate the demands of all the three services. So for the first time, we had an integrated set, setup which would look at it as an integrated entity. And that was the space cell's job. So that's what it happened. And that's the organizational change which made space to lo- the armed forces to look at space holistically. Of course, the demand of the Navy was the most followed by the Air Force and then of the Army because if you look at the Navy's need especially for satellite communications apart from other observation and uh, sensing it was the Navy which actually pushed for more and more of space facilities. So the Air Force too wanted it The army was interested in terms of two things. One was obviously for navigation, which also was required for inputs which we had to give to our long-range weaponry. So as we started acquiring long-range firepower, whether it was missiles or anything else, that required actually... A certain amount, I mean that could be leveraged by a certain amount, but quite a lot by civil, by satellite facilities. And that's when the hunger for that grew. And as that hunger grew, it pushed up the demand that we should have of our own. If we don't have it, we need to source it from the outside. And that's how the growth has been. We took some from what was available inside, but there was no specific, till very late, development for facilities only for the military. It started only after Cargill when the entire value chain, not only of trying to get military satellites, but is also about the interpretation and the dissemination. That started building up. And over a period of time, we have come a long way. Probably we still have a long way, but it is uh, tethered. To indigenous systems, because obviously that's where we want to be, and the progress of Israel today is—I think—the shyness with which they now look at us. Obviously, this technological sanctions also have been lifted, is no longer there. Although there is a certain reticence on the part of Israel to be still uh, be seen to be very close to the military, and I think that's a cultural thing which is not yet gone away, it still endures. And therefore, because India's capability cannot really be clear-cut, be in two different baskets. They have to merge, they have to actually uh, harmonize and synergize to get what is the best of them. So one of the things which I think can make it happen now is, of course, the newly created Defence Space Agency. But you could always ask the question, why has it taken so long? And that's, I think, what is called the very inertia of governmental working. And that's all I can attribute it to. And I think that we just seem to accept that as a state of nature, but we
0: need to improve. it. Absolutely. And uh, one of the you know, bare-bones kind of question that I had in mind is how integrated is space from a forces perspective? So, for example, if I am a a javan, for example, sitting in the border today, you know, between India and China, uh, in, for example, let's take this whole, uh, you know, galwan uh, situation, for example. uh, how, How much of space is actually integrated at that level of a simple javan to then, you know, maybe at the higher levels because uh, perhaps you know, at the higher intelligence levels uh, within the military it's easier because you're procuring certain areas of interest uh, uh, imagery for, for them or so on. But then in many of the forces around the world, you will see that uh, either directly from communications or even, for example, you will have the ability to even task satellites uh, even at that uh, ground level by having a command and control structure where mobile antennas are available to command uh, satellites and get data out of them and see what is happening on the other side, not having to go through institutional mechanisms to get access to such such intelligence. So can you give a quick overview on what would be like the bottom-up integration of space as of today across the armed forces?
1: Okay, so let's look at the infantry soldier today. Uh, I must admit that I've been out of the... forces, so I would not be up to date about the latest equipment, but I don't think there would be much difference. But what is pervasive to every individual today is the dependence on the navigation system. Still, till till actually ours come on uh, stream, we are now still dependent on the GPS. And GPS remains pervasive even down to the individual soldier because he uses that navigation. As far as the communications is concerned, the individual soldier is still not linked to satellite communication because he is linked close to his subunit which does not require satellite communications. He's got other redundancies of communications but not based on satellite as yet. But at other levels, let's say between the brigade headquarters and the division or the brigade and the battalion, there would be a redundancy of satellite communications available so it is not percolated down to the individual uh, soldier as yet. So basically, it still remains the navigation system.
0: Okay, and can you also give a overview of how, for example, this could also work in the imagery realm? Because in the communications realm, it is uh, quite clear, clear, and the navigation realm is also quite clear. What would also be interesting is the, the whole imagery realm, because. You know, what happened uh, even we recently with the whole uh, Indo China border, or even uh, the other borders, is change detection can be a very big feature of uh, satellite imagery. And automating change detection is uh, one of the features that many militaries are, uh, are pursuing to mark uh, incidents of construction or, or changes in the pixels, and therefore flagging some of the events for people to then verify. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I mean, you know, these technologies
1: will probably be available up to a brigade or a division at the max. Uh, but, the, but the tragedy is that these technologies are actually available in the private sector in India. There are many private entities who actually, what you just described, using AI to actually make this change detection not possible. Unfortunately, these uh technologies are the victims of our acquisition system that they have not been percolated down finally to where it for, which will who can leverage it the most and that's really the case because uh, it has also been hit over a period of time i think because of budget cuts and so on but the the as i said it's a tragedy that it now there is a lot there are a lot of um, uh, um, private sector People who have this, who want to sell it, but they but they have not, not been able to get it into the armed forces system, except, I think, the air force and the navy. They have managed to actually do it, and they don't require it at the individual level because they require it at the platform level, which they have, which I think they have managed to integrate. But as far as the army is concerned, I'm afraid the story still remains stuck, and although we have it but we are not able to get it into the system for various reasons. I mean, I don't want to uh, uh, think except I'm attributing it to a much larger thing called the acquisition system. But um, the the fact is that that's a tragic tale with that we have it, but we can't get it.
0: What happens in uh, planning is also quite interesting to explore because uh, modernization of armed forces is a big topic that is always uh, talked about. Generally, you know, how does the armed forces plan for modernization and include space as a tool of it? Is it that you just do some research on what is the best practices being followed by other armed forces and then see if you can reach that level or you know how does it normally would work?
1: Yeah, actually normally it would. this will be an operational demand. It is the operational guys and we have something called a, everybody in the armed forces has got what you call a perspective planning direct rate. They look into the future of technology. They spot what technologies can be used, how others are using it. And they are the ones who are actually supposed to incorporate it in your perspective plans. And you normally have what is called a technology map in which you decide that these are the technologies that you want. You either develop it on its own and then the DRDO jumps in or the private sector or you go abroad then depending on the priorities that you fix. So there is a system in place. But the question is, and which still lingers and still demands attention, is that that system is not fully functional, not efficient enough to actually get cutting-edge technology quickly into the system for various reasons, starting from probably availability of resources, poor prioritization, long procedures, which does not take any uh cognizance of how it is judged by outcomes, then uh, corruption within the system by between private players who actually keep uh, complaining, then the L1 system itself. So there's a whole lot of pathologies which afflict that acquisition system and that is why it is so that we have not been able to quickly harness and induct technology. And I am afraid that even in the uh, realm of the satellite, potential that is the same they have afflicted with the same problem
0: so you did talk about uh you know drdo and the the armed forces uh, i always wonder why didn't drdo pick up satellites as their own thing to do for the armed forces uh you know it may not have been something uh i mean it may not be something that uh, is uh, efficient enough today, for example, but, you know, back 20 years before, this could be something that uh, DRDO could have said that uh, we have a civilian space program and a military space program and uh, could have also built these satellites up for the military legacy, you know, in 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 that and integrated that into the military architecture right so why did not this happen is it because that uh, isro was uh, building up the space capability and the government did not want to you know replicate that capability in another uh, organization be it uh, in the defense as well or
1: yeah uh, uh, there is no doubt that isro is one of a high performance but also now over a period of time it is also a monopoly which is not which does not allow others to exist and that's one of the things which needs to be untangled. And even if the DRDO wanted to get into into, into the satellite arena, mm-hmm. DRDO would have said that that's our baby and it was mandated to them. So they had a say. So even if they wanted to do, they would have faced with resistance from the ISRO. And I'm sure they would have made that attempt, but the ISRO would have said that, no, this is ours. This belongs to us. And that's what it is. And now that is what is untangling. And the recent moves of the government, as you see, is about that. And uh, they've been the ISRO itself has been in the process of making a space law, as you say. If an entity make a law for itself, then it will safeguard all the interests it wants to protect. And I hope that thing doesn't happen. It needs to be broad-based. It needs to get the private sector into the space sector. And, and many of the uh, uh, demands of the militaries, can actually be met by the private sector. You just take small satellites. I mean, the, the, the fact that small satellite can solve a whole lot of military problems, and I'll tell you why I'm saying that, is because of the fact that today it's possible to do that. And we are also able to keep pace with technology because small satellites will have, a, I suppose, a life of about three to five years, And so you don't have to wait for the next listing of technology because you know that this guy is going to be... So you can put new technology into the next set of satellites. Whereas if you want to do that in a normative manner, you will take a very long time. So the potential of small satellite can today be leveraged for military purposes as long as you allow the private sector to do it because there are any amount of people in the private sector who are now capable of building these satellites and I'm sure this can launch it. And I think maybe the moves which the government has made recently is we will finally make that possible.
0: You did talk about uh, procurement rules and uh, the whole process. As far as I know, there's still no direct procurement of, for example, let's say a service where if I would want to monitor a particular area of interest as a person in the army, I could give out a particular tender or a contract saying, I don't really care about... Uh, you know, the technology specs of the satellites themselves, but so long as you can provide me resolution of of a certain resolution, certain area of coverage, certain time of coverage, and you can flag me events on an automatic basis, I, you know, I'm willing to subscribe to that service. The mentality I still suppose is too much of, I want to acquire and operate a a satellite and not, you know, acquire a service. There's a pure distinction there because in a service-based mindset you don't care about the hardware as such so long as the hardware does what you provide want it to do you don't really have to care about it but the mindset is not there is what i see
1: yeah i mean you know i, I, I uh, as far as the armed forces they wouldn't really want to get into a field which they are uh, which which somebody else can operate as long as they're provided because eventually this is about information in whatever form that you want it or about communications, connecting people. There are two realms which are here. As long as that is met, the emphasis couldn't care where it comes from. As long as they get it speedily and they're able to disseminate, interpret and disseminate it speedily, that would be sufficient for them. I don't think they have... uh, uh, The only thing which they would insist upon is they should have the capability to focus our resources in one particular area when it is required that control they want and that control i think is quite rightfully asked for because otherwise if somebody else has control about that resource and you have to you now depend on that guy's uh, whims and fancies to decide as to how do you concentrate your resources somewhere let's take ladakh for that matter right now i mean i'm sure that the uh, some amount of resources would have been concentrated to give it greater amount of surveillance focus. And that should be within the armed forces to at least have a greater say. But they don't have to, uh, uh,
0: let's say, uh, get beyond that to see as to how the... Independent of the reforms that the government is doing on the space side with ISRO, uh, do you see this uh, reflecting changes in the procurement in uh, the armed forces for uh, services from, uh, you know, companies in India, for example, let's say a company like I- Pixel, you know, these guys, young guys in Bangalore trying to build these uh, imaging satellites. Although they may not be building, uh, you know, very ultra high resolution satellites, but still, you know, they, they could maybe step up their game and build uh, higher resolution satellites. But is the whole change in the procurement rules within the armed forces ready to have any procurement from you know companies like them who are you know building and operating out of india
1: yeah i think the the hope lies in the fact that now firstly there is a budget squeeze secondly there is a demand for these projects and thirdly there are people in india who can provide it now previously what used to happen is when a guy like that came then the, firstly the drdo might say oh this we can do We'll make it and give it to you. Or they will say, and then they'll probably take over the project and and so on. I think we are now past that stage. So, there is a glimmer of hope that young people with potential, with products, can get an entry. But, let us not uh, belittle the power of entrenched interests. That is what requires political intervention. If there is a political will and there is actually uh, enough uh, let's say support for the uh, s- small scale sector uh, and the, there is a mechanism by which these can be uh, put on trial and not uh, compared with the big guys, then there is a hope. So I hope i think we are at least moving in that direction but i'm not sure whether we have yet reached the destination
0: absolutely and one of the part of uh, one of the changes that is happening across the world especially for example from the us uh, military you can see the you know whole formation of the space force and even the us air force now very aggressively funding and acquiring technologies from young companies and making sure that the technology is actually built up uh, by co-financing a lot of that, uh, I don't know if uh, other militaries are doing it around the world as well. But this is a direction a lot of the militaries are doing. But do you think that is uh, very far-fetched from the current reality of uh, you know the status quo in India?
1: No, in fact, I think you see apart from co-financing the small guys, I think there is a need actually to get the bigger guys involved also into this because they have the they have the money, they have the capital. And there is a market for it. So you have two axes on which you have to move. How do you promote this? How do you actually those are guys who need the capital help? But they're the big guys who have the capital but are not in this sector. How do you get them into this sector and utilize their capital so that they will finally make they have to make the profit? But you give them the assurance of the profit, and then you have a market not only in India, you probably will have to will have a market. In the uh, um, across the globe, so that's the only way to do it. Because now, what is going to happen because of COVID nineteen, there is going to be a great pressure on the budget. There is no money is going to be very rare. So all issues which are not there, the new ones will be become. They will say, okay, let's look at it sometime later. So this is going to be a major problem. So the question is to harness the capital which is available, and to actually use whatever little money you have to promote the private sector. Because eventually, government does not have money to invest. And that's where, the I think, for the next five years, that's going to be the state of affairs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that shows also, perhaps also, in the amount of investment that the space sector gets as the economy grows. One of the interesting uh, debates there is... uh, The percentage of uh, GDP and the growth of the economy against the investment into armed forces, uh, it also shows in China, right? Because uh, the amount of investment that China has done in the last uh, 10 or 15 years in in also space has put them in a league where they have about six times more operational satellites than India does. India has about 40, 45 uh, operational satellites today. And China, according to recent estimates, has about 250 of them. So this ties a lot into all of this and the spending expenditure and, and so on. So which brings me to this question of, uh, is this capability you know of China having six times or seven times more number of satellites than we have and the ability to monitor different regions, not just locally, but almost globally, how much of this uh, makes a, a difference when it comes to the armed forces?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, this comparison of absolute... Comparison between China and India misses the larger point that China is actually having the big fight with the biggest guy on the globe called the United States of America. So to compare India and China would be unfair in the sense that the Chinese have got much more greater and more problems than us. So their requirements, even in operational terms, are vast, much more than India. So this absolute comparison gives out uh, uh, an indication that compared to them, we are nothing. I think that is not the case because power is relative. They can't bring their entire power to bear on India because if they do that, then they will be vulnerable elsewhere. So their coverage, if you look at it from any point of view, as even in space, the fact that they're trying to be a maritime power with global maritime capabilities, and their geographic space itself. Obviously, they will have much more. But that doesn't mean that we should lag behind because we must put, we must at least, the point is that we must recognize the potential space offers to the armed forces and leverage it to the maximum capabilities because by doing that, you save in many other ways. You get more efficient. You get more, the military effectiveness increases. And that's the point, I think, which is important. So you can't say that this is something which we can wait for because what it provides to in operational terms is for the ability to sense, which is the sensor part and the ability to, sh- to be accurate because you can actually f- hit the target to a great deal of accuracy. And that's what finally what it does. It also gives you a great amount of early warning and intelligence, which we have already discussed about. So these are things which the the, the trade-offs which you get from space investment is much more than where you put in many other things. So that is why the prioritization for space, you ask me, has to be a very high level of prioritization. That recognition has to come from the military leadership itself and not... Follow the traditional path that okay, space is also there. Space is there, cyber is there. These are things which we can't neglect because trade offs are much much more higher.
0: She did talk about uh, the integrated defense staff and uh, the space cell, and now the creation of uh, the defense space agency. What are the differences in these organizations structurally and you know, functionally? Because uh, if the you know, the thing that they are doing is more or less the same. Uh, It uh, at least appears to me that it's almost more or less the same. But how different is this whole integrated defense staff to the Defense Space Agency? Because ultimately, what does the the Defense Space Agency have to do with the armed forces?
1: Yeah, actually, so actually, the armed forces were pushing for a a space command. And what they get is actually a a space agency. So... You know, a space command would have actually have been a much, much more larger uh, uh, structure than what they have got as a space agency. But because along with the space agency, there's a research part called the DSRO, which is now with the DRDO. So as far as the connection between these two, the DSA is supposed to be now the Apex agency for all issues connected with space and the armed forces. They were supposed to plan for the utilisation of space for the armed forces. And then, therefore, they are the ones who are supposed to indicate to the DRDO as to the type of capabilities and technologies that they require. And, And then DRDO is responsible for making that happen including the fact that if they don't have it, they're supposed to get it from elsewhere. So there is, there is a clear-cut differentiation between these two organizations. The DSA will now also function under the Permanent Chairman, Chief of Staffs Committee. You know, the CDS, the Chief of Defense Staff, wears uh, the hat of the CDS. He also is Secretary in the Department of Military Affairs, the DMA in the, in the M.O.D., so in the M.O.D. he's got two hats. One is secretary of the D.M.A. and is the C.D.S. as the prime military advisor to the Raksha Mantri. And then at the level of the services headquarters, he wears a third hat, which is the permanent chairman chief of staff's committee. And in that capacity where the D.S.A. will be functioning directly under him as permanent chairman chief of staff. So they function, both the cyber and the uh, DSA would function in the headquarters of the integrated defense staff, whose head is the permanent chairman chief of staff. So, we now have an enlarged space agency. Obviously, we will have more people to deal with it, they will be able to interact both with the private sector with the DRDO, with ISRO. Because they have been given a particular mandate. And that gives them greater power to interact. Eventually, I don't think it will be possible immediately to think of what was originally envisaged as a space command. But finally, we will gravitate towards it. How long that will take, only time will tell like the Space Force is now part of another service of the United States, India will probably take a longer time. But that's the direction in which we are moving. Only thing the movement in India can be very exasperating and one has to have a lot of patience to know that some progress is being made. So let's wish the DSA good health and good progress. But I'm afraid the first thing which you will have to encounter now is the budget squeeze. And I hope the military leadership will have the vision to make sure that they're not sidelined, that their importance is actually restored because you have less budgets. Here is a guy who can give you a whole lot of things with less money. Probably, I hope, they invest in it. But that only time will tell.
0: Just for the audience, I guess it's uh, better to clarify what is the difference between a space command and a space uh, agency, a defense space agency. Because this is, I think, a very military parlance and, you know, common people like me will not understand the differences between them.
1: Yeah. So a space agency
0: is actually part of a
1: staff function, which is within a headquarters itself. Whereas a space command would have been, uh, would also have an operational function, that they would be in charge of operations and they would be in charge of the entire process of planning and application and so on so the command is operational the agency is more about staff work about planning for the future and so on and allotting resources getting resources and so on so there is a difference between the two it's between operational and what we call staff work so one pushes the paper the other guy actually normally has a gun or firepower in his hands
0: Okay, and you did talk about the coordination between DSA and the DRDO to, you know, DSA coming up with the requirements and DRDO delivering it. But how does then the, you know, the private sector, the larger players, the smaller players, you know, get involved in all of this? Because it seems like, you know, this is again a one hop situation where essentially there is no direct tendering or direct procurement of services from the, private sector to the armed forces but the channel has to go through then the drdo again
1: yes i'm afraid
0: that that will going to be the case because
1: the other ones who's actually responsible for development of technology okay so the, it comes in where the technology has to be developed that's where the, the dsro comes in but where it is available off the shelf shelf and, DSRO will, and DRDO will, DSRO will have to say that, okay, now please go ahead and buy this because we can't make it and this is probably a better way to do it. So they'll have a say in that too. And uh, hopefully they won't stop the private sector. So there will be chances for the private sector to directly get into what the armed forces put in its technology map and wants to acquire. As long as the DSRO doesn't put its foot in. And that's a million dollar question.
0: That's an extremely tough question, as you said, because it's ultimately, you know, points out to conflict of interest there as well. Because essentially, if you have the same guys building satellites and, you know, trying to procure it also from the private sector, they would rather build it to, you know, make their institution more stronger, right?
1: Yeah. So the point is whether, the, uh, you know, the, all, 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 these, all these issues which we're discussing is actually known to everybody. The question is whether the people in power, whether the politicians, the higher military leadership, even the higher leadership of the DRDO, are cognizant of the problems we are facing and how to get it over with. If they stick on to what has been the practice that all DRDO does is first grab a project and then ride it for a long time, maybe deliver it and it normally short uh, falls short of expectations. If that is going to be the culture, no then probably we'll be there. But I think things are changing. I think now there is growing sensitivity amongst other realms that this cannot be allowed to happen. And that is where change is going to be. But uh, it's not going to be easy, is all I can tell you.
0: So I also wanted to ask you how much uh, of scope is there for uh, joint cooperation in space with uh, other countries in the region? Because you often see a lot of... Uh you know, traditional armed forces drills in either the Army, Navy or Air Force. Are there any capabilities that we can have uh, that says, you know, we can have a joint uh, space drill or, uh, you know, joint information sharing in space or other things? Are these things being explored?
1: See, I would, I would think not in space, but I think there is a lot of movement about sharing information which is gained through space, which is from the in, in the primarily in the intelligence realm, and now that we have actually signed also the agreement with the U.S. on communications, there would probably be a certain amount of uh, coordination between the countries. So there is movement in that direction. But as far as activities in space is concerned, I do not think that there is any movement. Although I might be wrong because I'm not aware of it.
0: Okay, you did talk about the role of the CDS and you know how the CDS functions in all of this. Uh, Is there a role for CDS among these other institutions between DSA and DSRO and you know potentially even providing advice to the defense minister on streamlining you know you know services procurement for space based services are these some of the things that the CDS can look at as a space specific uh, functionality. Absolutely, because CDS is now the head
1: of the Department of Military Affairs in the MOD. So the first time we have a department in the MOD, therefore he can interact with the Chairman DRDO, which is also another department. He can department with the Department of Defense. He has direct access to the uh, Raksha Mantri. So all that should make a difference. I mean, in the sense that, DRDO could actually take up projects on their own that services would not even come to know about. Now, that will be that much more difficult. So, what this structural change is, there is definitely more uh, chances or probability of the CDS now wanting to, if it want to exert itself, wants to know that, no, we must have this space, must be utilized. It's now feasible to do it better because the organizational structure supports it and i think that's a great advantage
0: the recent announcement by the government also created this in space which is sort of a regulator i don't know if it's really a regulator or not but it is under the department of space and not uh, you know it has to do nothing to with the defense space agency or the trdo But then if that really functions as a regulator, one of the things that they'll have to do is to coordinate with the defense, especially when it comes to decision on, uh, you know, possibly use of frequencies or uh, even uh, imaging certain areas of the country in certain resolutions and so on. So I see merit for the armed forces to be a member on the board of the INSPACE in making such uh, decisions. Do you think you know this is something that is being thought of in the system or is this something that is not of high priority?
1: See, I, I think at least in spaces, finally, these are positive movements. Look at that. The fact is today, they have now moved beyond the idea that ISRO is an entity within itself, within the national system, to say that this is a national asset which must be available for use to other people, even people in the private sector. And I think this shift, this very shift of conception of how this is being viewed, I think is a great step. That finally, people who are small, not able to do it themselves, can actually use ISRO's facilities to try and develop whatever potential, whatever they have to actually to do. I think that's a great step. So, in space, I think is a forward movement and as as you know they are now trying to actually also delineate the chairman israel from who's also the chairman of the space commission i think they are trying to actually move separate that i don't know whether that will work but maybe that's another way of doing it so as we see it israel is slowly now losing its monopoly which i think is a good step and that will only happen through political intervention and that is what that happened, why in space is going to be created. As far as the armed forces in in space is concerned, I think the idea right now is about being used for civilian purposes for private sector. But I think it is a matter of time before, let's say, applications in the military sphere also comes about, then that will be a natural progression. And the armed forces will probably find representation where they will also... I don't know whether they already, maybe the CDS should actually be part of this or not, I'm not very sure, but it's possible that it should happen because if the armed forces capability also needs to grow, it has to be part of the civilian uh, organizational structure because it cannot remain outside
0: so that brings me to this question of uh, the whole defense space agency's requirements because from what you've talked about the way the army and the armed forces uh, function it's quite clear that they are looking at the defense space agency to establish the requirements uh, that is then you know planned for and then that is being floated into the system for the DRDO to or whoever is possible to then you know provide that particular capability so my question there would be like, why wouldn't somebody then put out that as an open requirement in terms of a timeline and in terms of a specification, which uh, can then get priority by procurement through local sources. Uh, if local companies are able to provide that service, then there's an immediate procurement possibility. And if D- DSA publishes that as a requirement, let's say they say, we want you know, like 10 uh, satellites, that are covering such and such area uh, capabilities and um, at such a resolution. And we will procure this uh, from Indian sources with high priority. And that incentivizes a lot of uh, investment in the private sector to create that uh, capability and creates also competition among small and big players to get into that, right? There's a marketplace that you then create for ideas and for technology through that uh, through the channel and through that competition they can benefit.
1: I completely agree with you. In fact, you know, the principle should be that the DRDO should only develop those items which we can, which technology which nobody will give us and we can't source from outside very easily and which we can actually have on our own. The problem is that the DRDO should be confined to that arena that those are niche technologies which neither available in the private sector nor will anybody give it to you from the outside. and That's where they should be. Everything else actually can be sourced from India's private sector or actually as a joint venture between the two, you will save the problem of capital investment also because you don't have the money now. So that's the way forward. So I hope that the Defence Space Agency will put out a space roadmap to tell the people who are interested that this is what we want. Because unless that commun- that is communicated to the larger, uh, uh, you can say, uh, corporate world, how do people know what we want? So they'll have to make that effort. I'm not sure whether they're going to do it, but I hope they do.
0: Can the CDS also be, you know, involved in streamlining such a procurement process with the Defense Space Agency, where he can say that if the DSA then publishes a list of uh, requirements, and some companies say, yeah, we are invested, uh, you know, we've invested in this capability and we have uh, demonstrated some uh, possibilities. Can procurement then be streamlined to have a tendering or a competition system between them? And then, uh, and is there a role for CDS in this? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, CDS is the head of the Department of Military Affairs. So he is very much, uh, uh, he, the, the acquisition system is part of the defense secretaries, which is in the Department of Defense. But CDS can definitely play a role because he's part of that acquisition system. He has got membership of the defense acquisition councils and so on. So he definitely can play a role because he represents in the Ministry of Defense the user. He's the guy who's to tell them that this is what we want. And it is now for the other power, pa- either the DRDO or the Department of Defense to make it available to the user in the manner that the user wants it. So that is now...
0: How it has been configured so definitely there's a major role for the cds here so my final question to you i think we've taken an hour or so to talk about all of this i think this is uh, very insightful in terms of understanding how the military works generally and what are the different organizations and what is the structure and all of these are quite clear in this conversation but where do you see this spanning out in the next uh, five to ten years reflecting what has happened in the last 15 years
1: I think we're going to gain speed as long as we can get over the problem of the budget squeeze, which is going to last at least for another five years. And the only way we we can now make it happen is if we can source it either as FDI or as private capital from inside the country. And I think both of that is possible because... It, it is only through that because you, all these things require capital. The government now is going to be faced with a capital problem. And it's already faced with the capital problem. So unless it moves into this sphere of actually looking and finding it out not from because you uh, through the DRDO because that's all government money. It has to just move outside it. It's a question of changing your outlook and see as to how you get it done because you believe that this
0: must be done. Firstly, that belief must be there and I hope they have it. I think this is a you know a good uh, ray of hope for people to you know be energized and do whatever they are trying to do. I know a lot of young people who have invested a lot of time and effort in getting a lot of things uh, up and coming in India now. I hope this uh, you know gives them a, a hopeful message for the future. Uh, thank you very much, uh, General Venon, for your time. Uh, it's been a very insightful conversation. I hope to you know, do this further and explore this topic a little bit further in the coming uh, months as, uh, you know, things streamline. And some of these companies become also mature in terms of showcasing some of their capabilities. That, I think, uh, can be a bigger trigger in the coming days.
1: You know, India's promise in space actually can only be carried on the back of the brains of the young minds which are there. And I hope the government connects to them.